0: The liberty to reapply, didn't they? So the, so the monetary penalties, in case they got in again, would surely deter them from doing what they did before. Well, Your Honor, that's possible, I suppose. It's very but possible.
1: it was—it was not the intent with which they were imposed. The intent, according to the OCC, in its published order, was it repeated at the uh, in, uh, tr- the uh, hearing before Judge Thompson, was to deter others through publicizing this order. Now, making of my clients an example in order to deter third parties is a classic definition of punishment, regardless of whether
0: But if we look at the statute, I mean, are are we bound by what OCC says at the time? The question is, what was Congress's intent?
1: I agree with that. But there has not been any uh, suggestion thus far that there was any uh, divergence between the two. Well, I'm suggesting. If I could, I like to reserve. I'm sorry, sir. I didn't. Go ahead. I was going to Go say ahead. I would reserve time, but if I missed the question, I apologize. No, you didn't end.
0: miss anything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Mr. Uffbaum. Uh Mr. Dreben.
2: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Civil money penalties serve a vital purpose in federal regulatory schemes because they serve as an ongoing motivation to regulated parties to conform their conduct to the requirements of the law. For four reasons, our position is that the imposition of civil money penalties in such regulatory schemes does not constitute a bar under the Double Jeopardy Clause to petitioners' subsequent criminal prosecution. First, civil money penalties in such regulatory schemes like civil forfeiture actions do not constitute punishment for purposes of the double jeopardy clause of the 5th amendment second even assuming that these oh well, penal- what do
3: we do with language and helper helpers part of the problem
2: i think justice o'connor that to a large extent this court has clarified and limited much of the language in helper which could be read to lead to very broad results, um, including results such as petitioners are arguing for today. One of the most significant features of Halper was its extraordinarily broad definition of punishment as encompassing any sanction that had-
3: Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, that leads
2: to a lot of problems. It, it leads to a lot of problems because Halper thought or said that any sanction that couldn't be solely explained without reference to deterrence or retribution must be deemed punishment for double jeopardy purposes. At least twice since that case, this Court has retrenched somewhat from Halper's description of punishment in that respect.
4: May I ask, assuming the language is much too broad in Halper, do you think there was punishment in Halper?
2: I think not, Justice Stevens. Our position in Halper was that there was not punishment within the meaning of double jeopardy. There was in a so common sense just
4: question of language, the holding is basically wrong in your, your position.
2: Oh our position was then that the court should I'm not, not do
4: We can't ignore cases as though they had never been decided. Excepting
2: it's been the, decided. Accepting think, the holding of Halper. Okay. Yes. Then the Court's conclusion in that case was that there was punishment, but the court reached that Uh, by a process of analysis that required looking at the fact that it was a fixed penalty, that the penalty was totally disproportionate to the only legitimate aims of the statute that were not punitive.
3: Was there some element of vindictiveness and sort of a due process focus, do you think, in Halper?
2: I have never seen that in the opinion, Justice O'Connor. I do think that it was significant to the Court that Halper had been first criminally prosecuted that the government then came in and obtained civil penalties. That's the
3: vindictiveness element.
2: I wouldn't be prepared to concede that that was vindictiveness because there was no showing in that case, and I don't think that the record would, would bear the conclusion that the government was motivated to punish Halper for exercise of any of his constitutional rights, which is normally the due process test that would apply in a criminal case.
3: But a dissatisfaction by the government, we had this criminal prosecution and we didn't get uh, much punishment out of it. Now, let's go do something about that. We've got this civil remedy here.
2: Well, if that were true, then it would mean that Halper should not be viewed as a double jeopardy case at all, because that analysis, I would think, would apply even if it were clear that the second case... Had uh, nothing to do with the elements that were proved in the first case, and thus wasn't the same offense under Blockburger. Uh, we do think that Halper should be, to the extent that Halper
3: didn't discuss Blockburger for some reason, in in the sense of thinking that applied.
2: We didn't raise a Blockburger or same elements uh, issue in Halper because the Civil False Claims Act and the Criminal False Claims provisions. Uh, would appear to be satisfied under that test. We brought the case on a direct appeal from a district court decision to this court, raising only the question of whether a civil false claims (coughs) sanction could ever be deemed punishment within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment. We argued then that only criminal punishment could satisfy the double jeopardy clause. This court rejected that. And the question is whether the analysis that was used in Halper should carry over to the very different kind of penalties that are at issue in this case. Civil money regulatory penalties aim primarily to shape the conduct of parties who are subject to regulation by sitting as an ever-present reminder that there are consequences for violation of the law. And agencies use them for precisely that purpose, which is appropriately described as a deterrent purpose. Now, under a broad reading of Halper, which I think petitioners have at times embraced, any deterrent purpose would brand these sanctions as punitive for double jeopardy purposes. But this Court has made clear, both in Kurth Ranch and in the United States versus Ursary, that even an obvious deterrent purpose does not mean that a civil sanction constitutes punishment and applying an analysis that respected that factor in ursory, this Court concluded that even though civil forfeiture proceedings are imposed largely to motivate owners of property not to allow their property to be used in violation of law, that civil forfeiture should not be deemed punishment for double jeopardy purposes, even if it might be deemed punishment under a common sense view or plain view or under other constitutional provisions.
5: Were the penalties in Halper not regulatory under this scheme that you're putting forth? That they're distinguishable from the kind of penalties we have here?
2: They were, Justice Kennedy, and they are for two reasons. The the first reason is that- They
5: they were distinguishable or were regulatory?
2: They they are distinguishable. They were not regulatory. The Court deemed the penalties that were imposed under the False Claims Act uh, to be analogous to liquidated damages Uh, that a party may collect, whether it's governmental or private, when it has been damaged by fraud. And the Court reached that conclusion by looking at the character of the sanctions that were authorized by the statute. Damages, actual damages, double damages, and a fixed penalty, which the Court viewed as a way of getting rough compensation for the Government to include not only its direct losses, but costs of investigation and costs of prosecution.
4: Mr. Dreben, apart from the fact that this uh, definition of, of punishment would enable the government to win this case, what, what is there to be said for it? In, I mean, in the language of the double jeopardy clause, in the common understanding of punishment, I mean, are are we just authorized to give punishment whatever definition in the world we want in order to produce results that that we sort of like? I think, Justice Scalia, that the starting point is suggested
2: by the fact that the word punishment is not in the double jeopardy clause. Well, yes, we
4: could start with that. And and 48 (laughs) states have have asked us to overrule Halper because of that. Well,
2: there, there is, I think, an irreducible need to consider the fact that the double jeopardy clause speaks in language that undeniably connotes a criminal offense. It speaks of putting somebody in jeopardy of life or limb and it speaks of an offense. And those are concepts that have primary application if not exclusive application to criminal conduct. Now we suggest in this case that the appropriate test to reconcile the double jeopardy clause and with the possibility that civil sanctions may be misused in a way that could implicate that clause, is to apply the test that this Court described in United States versus Ward. First determine whether Congress intended a civil sanction, and then determine whether there is any evidence by the clearest proof that Congress's intent to create a civil sanction should be overridden and that the sanction should be deemed criminal. That is a test that I think is not only responsive to the language of the Double Jeopardy Clause, but reflects the fact that the consequences under Double Jeopardy are very significant to the government. In this case, we went in through the OCC and found violations of banking regulations, imposed civil penalties, imposed non-participation requirements uh, on the petitioners through their settlement and obtained uh, important results from the point of view of the Office of the controller of the Currency's regulation of the banking system.
4: Subsequently— but, but May I just ex- interrupt? Is, it seems fairly clear, if you apply Blockburger, that wouldn't have barred the criminal proceeding. I agree, Justice Stevens. So that really, in, in this statute, you don't have the practical problem that concerns you generally.
2: I I agree with that, Justice Stevens. There are many other federal regulatory statutes where there is a civil enforcement provision that includes money penalties and that has a criminal counterpart that requires perhaps an additional element of the enter or willfulness, but that the elements are essentially identical.
3: How would you go about applying Blockburger when you compare the civil and the criminal charges in light of the different burdens of proof? Does, does that matter?
2: Uh, I don't think that it does, Justice O'Connor. If one embarks on the enterprise of applying the Double Jeopardy Clause to civil proceedings, the question then would be, under Blockberger, are the elements required to be proved by the government in the civil case the same constitutionally, regardless of the burden of proof? Uh, that, that would not be a ground on which we would suggest that these can be distinguished. Now, it is, of course, true that if we brought, for example, a criminal federal securities case and the defendant was acquitted, and we then sought to bring a civil federal securities case that had the same identical elements, um, we would not be barred because the defendant would have no multiple punishment argument and the burden of proof is lighter in a civil case, so the criminal conviction, the criminal acquittal would not constitute any kind of a collateral estoppel bar on the government proceeding, but that, of course, is not what we have here. What we have here is an agency that, in the course of enforcing its own requirements and to keep its reins on the regulatory and regulated parties that are before it, imposes civil penalties to let all regulated parties know that there are consequences for violating the law.
6: MR. Mr. going back to the second part of Ward, the criteria that the agency uses sound like traditional sentencing criteria to me. I mean, they're set out on page three, willfulness, insider status, previous warnings, history of violations, loss, number of violations, duration, continuation, and so on. I mean, that sounds like, like common law punishment to me.
2: Well, the criteria, Justice Souter, may not be very different. But those criteria are aimed at determining what level of penalties is appropriate to send a deterrent signal not only to these individuals, but to the world at large. And yeah, but that's has, exactly what, what common law courts do in sentencing. That is true, but the Court has recognized that deterrence is a legitimate, non-punitive objective of the civil law. That is exactly what the Court said in Ursary when it looked at civil and rem forfeiture recognized that one of the main purposes of it was to motivate parties not to allow their property to be used in violation of the law, and then held that that form of sanction is not punishment for double-digit Maybe we're trying to have
6: it both ways, and maybe you're accepting that uh, difficulty of ours in, in answering as you do, because I don't know how to draw the line.
2: The line is one that I think should be drawn with reference to the fact that the consequence under double jeopardy is entirely to foreclose the second proceeding, as petitioners have presented the question here. If they are right and we have imposed punishment in the first proceeding, and assuming that Blockburger were satisfied on their behalf, we would then lose any right whatsoever to bring a criminal prosecution. In consequence... So it's,
6: it's, the, it's, it's the order of the proceedings that you're getting at?
2: Well, the order of proceedings, but what I wanted to focus on here is simply that there are radical consequences from deeming a sanction to be covered by the Double Jeopardy Clause. If the Court were to hold, and we would not dispute, that these civil fines were sufficiently punitive to implicate the concerns of the Eighth Amendment, what that would mean is that there would be constitutional review of the amount of the fines that were imposed to determine that they were not excessive. If the Court were to
4: determine that there was Eighth a— The Amendment uses the word punishment, by the way, which is it, a great advantage over the double jeopardy clause.
2: Well, it does in the Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause, but it does not in the Excessive Fines Clause. And I think that the Court has, has incorporated notions of punishment into both of those clauses to capture in a colloquial way what they are getting at. Right, but the Constitution but, itself doesn't use that word. I
6: think what, if I understand what you're telling me is, number one, we ought to consider the consequence of applying double jeopardy here. And you're saying when it would foreclose the criminal proceeding, that is a more serious consequence. It is entitled to wait in our line drawing than if it would impose merely a civil proceeding. I think that's the first thing you're saying. Beyond that, is, is, is there any sort of line drawing criterion?
7: The, well, the
2: line it, that I think that that comes out of United States versus Ursary is that it is entirely permissible for the court for, for Congress to authorize civil sanctions that pursue a deterrent purpose, and that that does not brand them as punishment under the Double Jeopardy Clause. So so right so. That's not move. a line.
4: That's what's not a line. Well, we were asking you what it's the really line is. Line. You're telling us what the line isn't. I, the
2: line would be—
4: The line is not deterrence, but what is right. it?
2: The, the test that we're suggesting in this context is the test articulated in United States versus Ward. If the sanction is framed as a civil sanction, but in purpose or effect it is so punitive as to betray that characterization, then the court will determine that. It
7: how has does one know that when it's so so yeah. punitive? It does. How how does one know that, Justice Ginsburg? I thought you had started out by saying you're, you're not you're accepting helper Halper's language is too broad; it has to be confined. And I had written down: fixed penalty, totally disproportionate. Uh, what else?
2: As far as as the scope of Halper?
7: To to know what what should our standard be for saying this is labeled civil penalty, but it gets into double jeopardy territory because it's punishment. And we know that for what what identifying characteristics, and so you, you what you started to say now using "ward is uh, when it becomes the, the words that were are highly generalized, so I would like you to be more concrete. the The most concrete that I can be,
2: Justice Ginsburg, is to note that first, any civil sanction needs to be considered. Uh, on its own terms, so that there will be different results for different kinds of civil sanctions. And second, the kind of civil sanction that we're talking about here is not the entire class of civil money penalties. It is the class of civil money penalties that are imposed for regulatory purposes. And our submission is that, categorically, the Court should conclude that if those sag- sanctions are enacted under st- imposed under statutes that pass the Ward test, there is not a double jeopardy problem. Now, the Ward test will always be a highly case-specific enterprise for this Court because to the extent it's been particularized, it looks to the list of factors that the Court articulated in Kennedy versus Martino Mendoza, and those factors the Court noted even in that case may point in different directions and they have to be balanced. Well, Mr. Grieben, well, there-
3: in, in um, Halper— the criminal prosecution occurred first, and then the civil penalties. Correct. And, uh, at least as I look at it, it seemed to me to have some element in there of a concern by the court of vindictiveness and, and disproportionality, if you will, and, and due process type concerns. Here, in this case, the civil sanctions were imposed first, so none of that could be present. Maybe that line is useful. What well, comes first?
2: Well, that would certainly confine uh, Halper to its facts and would restrict but it, the... But it
0: would really cut Halper yeah. loose from all, all reasoning, it,
2: it? would cut Halper loose from the Double Jeopardy yeah. Clause, which, and it which, would...
4: On which it was based... Mr. Dreamin, don't you think it'd be even more vindictive if the government having lost uh, an action for civil penalties was so mad that it prosecuted the person criminally? That's real vindictiveness. Well,
2: I, I, don't, I, I don't think that Halper itself involved a case in which vindictiveness you know, I, I was established.
4: You're looking for a, for a situation that displays vindictiveness. It's, it's not the one where, this, where, where the civil precedes, uh, uh, follows the criminal. It's the one where, where the civil precedes the criminal. It, and it having we, lost the civil case, the government is so enraged, it prosecutes the person criminally. We might have a problem. Seems to me more vindictive. I'm not less.
2: We may have a problem under conventional collateral estoppel doctrine if we failed to persuade the fact finder by a preponderance of the evidence that certain facts were proved and then we sought to prove to another fact finder that they were established beyond a reasonable doubt. There are already conventional protections in the law that would cover cases like that, and I'm not aware of any but case where we But you just mentioned
7: didn't. issue preclusion, which would be a good neutral reason for doing the criminal prosecution first. Because if you win in the criminal prosecution, if you've established the fact beyond a reasonable doubt, then you do have issue preclusion is true. in the civil case.
2: That is true. And there are often good reasons to do the criminal prosecution first, not, not the least of which is that uh, grand jury investigations are surrounded by secrecy, and you want to encourage the grand jury, to be able to gather information without interfering with any civil process. And oftentimes, grand jury investigations will go forward. The civil case will sit back. And there are also many cases where the government decides after a criminal conviction is obtained, there's no need to proceed with any further proceedings for penalties. But in a case like this, the agency made a perfectly valid judgment that there was an importance to moving promptly to impose the non-participation order to protect members of the public from further potential banking violations by these individuals and to impose the civil penalties so that the rest of the regulated industry was aware that even a regulatory violation has consequences, whether or not down the road somewhere the particular individuals who committed it were so culpable that they should also be subjected to criminal prosecution. And it would therefore be a fairly dramatic consequence for the government to have to choose an election of remedies at a point where the agency knows that there's a violation, but nobody knows whether there will be sufficient evidence of criminal activity to warrant a grand jury to indict. And in that sense, the order of proceedings not only has a great practical significance, but I think that it also has a constitutional significance. The submission of the, of the defendants here is that the multiple punishments doctrine uh, exists in a fashion that uh, makes a punishment a jeopardy for constitutional purposes. That has never been the traditional way that this Court has analyzed multiple punishments questions even before Halper. The Court has applied the multiple punishments doctrine even when there was indisputably a single jeopardy. The Court has held that the multiple punishments doctrine prohibited the imposition of cumulative punishments in one proceeding when the legislature has not authorized it. And in those cases, there was clearly only one jeopardy. The basic premise of the multiple punishments doctrine was that once an individual has been put in a criminal jeopardy, additional punishment shall not be imposed on that individual for the same crime. And that is not satisfied in a case in which petitioners here have never been criminally indicted, and have never been criminally charged. Now, if the Court agrees with us that the Double Jeopardy Clause is categorically not applicable to civil regulatory sanctions unless the defendant is able to make the showing that despite the civil characterization, the civil sanctions were in fact criminal under the United States versus Ward test, it doesn't mean that there is no constitutional limit or no statutory limit to the amount of civil penalties that the Government can impose. There is judicial review that is governed by traditional APA standards of whether a particular civil penalty is within the boundaries that have been set by Congress and that are established by the criteria of the regulatory agency. And there is also review under the Eighth Amendment Excessive Fines Clause to keep the particular civil penalties in question
4: both within both of those standards balance. would have been met in Halper, of course.
2: Well, it's not clear whether they would have been met in
4: Halper. But that the statute authorized the penalties.
2: The statute clearly authorized it, and one of, the, one of the problems that the court had in Halper that is not present here is that the statute um, required the imposition of fixed penalties for every violation, regardless of how significant the fraud was to the government. And that created the potential for hugely disproportionate civil sanctions being imposed for the particular fines, that, the particular violations that were at issue.
5: This but, but before you get to the Eighth Amendment excessive fines provision, you have to show that it is a penalty, do you not?
2: I don't think so, Justice Kennedy.
5: In our punitive damages uh Cases and jurisprudence, haven't we said that the Eighth Amendment applies only to a criminal proceeding for excessive fines?
2: No. Uh, In fact, the holding of Austin versus United States is that the Eighth Amendment applies to civil in-rem forfeiture, which is clearly a civil proceeding. The holding in the punitive damage In the forfeiture
5: area, yes.
2: Because it's an exaction by the government of money um, for a violation of law. And it is true that it has to be, in some sense, a penalty. I don't think a tax, for example, that is a true tax, is subject to the Excessive Fines Clause. And I don't think that a disgorgement remedy or a damages remedy would be subject to the Excessive Fines Clause. But all that is constitutionally necessary is that there be a fine. And we would readily concede that the civil penalties that are applicable under the statutes at issue here are constitutional fines.
5: We have said punitive damages are not fines, though. All right, I'll look In addition,
2: the Court has said that punitive damages are not paid to the Government directly. Uh, the Court reserved the question in the browning ferris case of whether a Kitam case might be viewed differently because the Government collects part of the money, and I think the Court would likewise reserve punitive damage schemes where the punitive damages were paid in part to the State. But in the conventional case where a private party brings a civil case and collects punitive damages, the Eighth Amendment has nothing to say about it. The Eighth Amendment has a lot to say about what the government does in these civil fines. And therefore, there should be no reservation on the Court's part that there would be no constitutional constraint whatsoever were the double jeopardy clause ruled inapplicable to
0: these civil penalties. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Drieben. MR. ROTHFUM, YOU HAVE FOUR MINUTES REMAINING. THANK YOU,
1: YOUR HONOR. MR. CHIEF JUSTICE, MAY IT PLEASE THE COURT. WITH REGARD TO THE ORDER OF PROCEEDINGS, I WOULD NOTE THE OBVIOUS. THAT IS UP TO THE GOVERNMENT. IF IT WISHES TO BRING A CRIMINAL PROSECUTION FIRST, IT MAY DO SO. AND AS A PRACTICAL MATTER, WHENEVER THERE IS A BELIEF THAT, uh, ON THE PART OF THE GOVERNMENT, uh, that 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 KIND OF DUAL PROCEEDING WILL BE FORTHCOMING. There's traditionally very close coordination reflected, for example, in decisions of this Court and the Courts of Appeals regarding the rights of a litigant to uh, civil discovery while the grand jury is still sitting. With regard to the um, Eighth Amendment issue, it may be that the Eighth Amendment also would apply, but that is, that is not an exclusive application. The, it is our position that the Double Jeopardy Clause of the Fifth Amendment under this Court's cases, apply to a statute such as this, which imposes punishment on solely uh, punitive or traditionally punitive criteria set forth in the statute and expounded by the administrator called upon to do so uh, in in, uh, a matrix, as it is called, that is self-consciously patterned on the federal criminal sentencing guidelines.
8: What happens if you uh, have a... uh Government agency or something says, we're going to fine you $10 if you're late for a meeting. What's the point of the fine? Well, we want to get people to the meeting. Only deterrence.
1: If, if the person is allowed to go to the meeting after he pays the fine, that might very well be a remedial imposition. It's,
8: only, it's not remedial. I said, why'd you do it? Well, people are late for the meeting. We want them to be there in time. $3 first meeting, $5 second. Rem- well, yeah. You have to have, uh, uh, you have, to have uh, trial and... I mean
1: Your Honor, I, I, I know of no such statement. No, no, maybe there's
8: never such a thing, but but perhaps uh someday somebody might think of it. People get late for the meetings in other organizations. They they fine you if you're late. A little fine. I think it'd be a very good idea. <laughs> yeah. Right. I right. Right.
1: I understand it. <laughs> uh, your Honor, the difficulty I have with, with your question is that this statute and these criteria are so specific.
8: They're solely, they're solely deterrent, just like my fine.
1: Well, when, when one measures uh, the size of a fine according to whether it's a recidivism and according right, to... Then it's, it's a,
8: the, the size. size. It's not now a question of whether it's serving a purely deterrent.
1: But it must also be an intentional act. Uh, at least under the statute as it then existed. And with, with regard to that point and, and of where to draw the line on, on what is and isn't a penalty, I would invite, if I could, the Court's attention to one of the first cases in this area, the which held that first a settlement agreement would be treated as being the equivalent of a criminal acquittal or or conviction, so that the defendant could plead double jeopardy, saying that otherwise a great principle would be sacrificed to mere form. And second, that the mode by which the penalty was imposed did not matter, whether by a civil action or a criminal prosecution. A unanimous court repeated that holding in La Franca. And I think the point of La Franca uh, in distinguishing between the penalty and the tax issue it must serve some other purpose and that i think is the point of ursery, in addition to the historical unique thank you guys.
0: thank you mr rothbaum the case is submitted